May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Be seated. There's a man named Christian Smith who teaches at Notre Dame. At least I think he's still there. He's a professor of sociology. And uh, several years ago, he oversaw this massive survey uh, looking at the beliefs and practices of Christian teenagers in the United States. And after the end of this survey, him and his uh, collaborators uh, published a book and they published their findings. And one of their findings was that many Christian teenagers in America aren't very Christian. And, and they said that um, their views of God are not based on the Bible or in the history of Christian thought. In fact, they said that their view of God is a cross between a divine butler and a divine therapist. The divine butler is there. You, you call him in when you need him. Maybe most of us can't relate to a butler. Anybody <laughs> have a butler? How about an Uber driver? Okay. He's there when you need him. You press the button and then he goes away. But he doesn't have much relevance in your daily life. And the divine therapist, maybe we should qualify this as a bad therapist, who's there only to affirm and never to challenge. Never to challenge how you live or how you think. And so these sociologists said, now this is, this is what people, young people today, are thinking about God. Divine butler, Uber driver. Bad therapist. Now, before those of us who are older, old fogies, look down our noses at the youth, the question is, well, where did they get these ideas? Who taught them this? The beliefs and practices of the youth reflect, to a great extent, the beliefs and practices of the adults. A God who is a kind of divine butler at my beck and call, but practically irrelevant to my life. A God whose job is just to make me feel better is a God of our imagination. An idol. A fiction. A God that we can deal with. But not the God of the Bible. Not the living God of the Bible. Not the God that Isaiah the prophet encountered. And we read about that in Isaiah chapter 6. I invite you to take a look at that passage. As we look at Isaiah's call, his commission. He was a great prophet, perhaps the greatest prophet of Israel. And this is where it started. In this vision of God. We need to know who the true God is. And Isaiah encountered the true God. He says it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. That was the mid-8th century B.C. King Uzziah. This was a major transition moment in the history of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Because King Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years. Imagine that. Somebody in power. Longer than I've been alive. He, I think he, he reigned for 52 total years in Judah. And it was a time of prosperity and stability for 
the southern kingdom of Israel. And now Uzziah has died, the king. But Isaiah sees the ultimate king. Perhaps he's worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem, gathered with other worshipers, but God gives him a vision. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood these angelic creatures, the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face, with two he covered his Eyes and with two he flew. And they called out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So at the center of this vision of who God is, is this threefold declaration of his holiness. Threefold, a matter of emphasis, a matter of intensity. We need to understand that. The God of the Bible, the living God that Isaiah encountered, is a holy God. A holy God. And what does it mean to call God holy? The word here has this connotation of separateness or being uh, cut off. It emphasizes the otherness of God. Remember that in the temple in Jerusalem... In the sanctuary, in the inner sanctuary, was the what? The holy of holies. And that was a place that was separated by a veil. You couldn't just go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest in that once a year could enter into that place where the presence of God dwelt. The holy of holies. It was separate. It was cut off. God is separate from us in this sense. God is other. Isaiah sees God as a king. He's sitting on a throne. And the king is separate from the commoner. The king is separate from his subjects. So this emphasizes the holiness of God. One aspect of it is his otherness. He's not like us. He's not a man or a woman like us. He's wholly other. He's holy. Something about the separateness of God. We ought not to cut God down to size to make Him in our image. There's another aspect of the holiness of God and that is His perfect righteousness and His moral purity. God is not like us in this respect because our righteousness, our goodness is always tainted. It's tainted with sin and selfishness. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Even when I do something good, it's tainted by my sin and self-centeredness. You know, I go to visit somebody who's sick, that's a good thing. But I'm wondering, sometimes I'm tempted, I wonder if so-and-so knows about this. I take my turn at the dishes or... When I'm doing the dishes at home and it's not my turn, which is a rare event. Let's just say that theoretically this were to happen. <laughs> my wife is here, so I have to be honest. It's not my turn to do the dishes, but I step in and do them anyway. Well, I'm thinking, do people appreciate this? That's a good thing to do, but it's, it's tainted. I 
began to pray and I start praying fervently. Then I began to think of, wow, I'm becoming quite the prayer warrior. Sin and, and pride, it infects everything. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. Sin, sin stains our heart and even our good deeds, but not God's. God is perfectly righteous. Perfectly pure. He's not tainted by sin. He's not tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, James says, 114. But we are. We're tempted by evil. We're tested by evil. And we often fall. But God is holy. And because God is holy, He has the right to judge. He is seated upon a throne and in the ancient world the king was a judge. The king has the right to judge. The king has the right to enforce his law. God is the judge. He has the right to judge people and nations. Isaiah, his, his mission, and, and here's the commission we're reading about, but then his mission is going to be a very difficult one. And nobody's going to want to hear what Isaiah has to say as he carries out this mission because he's going to be telling people the judgment of God is going to come to this nation. Because we've turned our backs on God. And that did happen when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. But because God is holy, God will uphold His holy law and He will bring justice in this life or the next. Sometimes God's justice is revealed in allowing people or nations to suffer the consequences of turning away from Him. They have forsaken the Lord, Isaiah says, Isaiah 1 for they've forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And then he begins to lay out the consequences of this. God's law is the sure foundation upon which to build our lives. And when that foundation begins to crumble, when it begins to rot, what happens to a building when the foundation crumbles? It collapses. And... Friends, perhaps that's what it is happening in our world today. Could it, be, could it be that God is allowing a culture to suffer the consequence of forsaking Him? What about in the church today? Scripture says judgment begins with the house of God. What are we seeing in the church in America today? We are seeing sin exposed, brought to light. Things that were hidden, brought to light. People who thought they could get away with things being exposed to the light. What happened in the Roman Catholic Church with the abuse scandals? Have you been seeing this? It's happening now in the Southern Baptist Church. It's happening in multiple denominations. It's happened in Anglicanism. It's happened in the ACNA. God is not mocked. He will bring to light things that are hidden in the darkness. He has a moral law and there are consequences to breaking this. God is holy. And so what should our response be in light of the holiness of God? If we really understand the God of the Bible, if we're taking our image of God from people like Isaiah who encountered the living God, 
in the pages of this book. If we understand the holiness of God and have experienced something of His presence, what should our response be? What is the natural response? Well, look at what Isaiah says. Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Other translations say, I'm undone. The Message Bible says, I'm as good as, bad, as dead. He's experienced something of the terror of being in the presence of, the holy, of a holy and righteous God. Yesterday, our family went to the, to the air show down there in Chesterfield. And we were on the outskirts. We, weren't, we were in the cheap seats. We didn't pay for a ticket, but we were on the edge of it. And these jets flying over our heads with these loud booms as they break through the sound barrier. You know, four or five of these jets flying just, I don't know how many feet above our heads, but over the treetops. That's a terrifying sort of sight and experience. You're just in awe of this power. And I was thinking how terrifying it would be to be on the wrong side of that firepower. Here is Isaiah in the presence of the living God, holy, righteous, majestic, all-powerful. And he says, I'm as good as dead as the foundations shake in the presence of God. And then he does what is natural to do, and that is to confess. This is, this is the response that is natural when we understand who God is and who we are in light of who He is. We become aware of our sin. I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. He, he, he's going to speak for God with his lips, but he realizes in the presence of this God that his lips are unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. He needs to be cleansed. Those of us who speak for God, those of us who are preachers, teachers, missionaries, who desire to stand up and to stand out and to say something for God on God's behalf, we need to be cleansed. We need to continually be cleansed. And confess our sin. We need to make sure. And this is for every Christian. Make sure that there is nothing in our heart. There is no known sin that we're harboring. So that we can be right with God. And have a clean conscience before God. This is what confession does. The life of the Christian is a matter of continual confession. The reformer said. Continual repentance. Continual cleansing, not to beat ourselves up with guilt, but to be cleansed by a merciful God. The entire nation needed to be cleansed. And Isaiah confesses that. He says that I live among a people of unclean lips. Because really at the heart of the problem of Israel was religious hypocrisy. The people knew the right things to say. They knew the right rituals to perform. But their heart was far from God. And Isaiah says, and Jesus quotes this later, 
They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship was not sincere. Their society was filled with injustice. There's one point in Isaiah in the early chapters where he said, These people are heroes at making drinks and drinking wine. They really got the party thing down. But they take bribes for justice. They're allowing people to get away with injustice. They're disregarding the poor. They're living however they want to live in their moral lives and they're worshiping idols. And yet they go through. They, they go through the motions of worship. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so Isaiah recognizes his own un, that he's unclean. His own sin and the sin of the people that he lives with. And he knows in the presence of God that it's, he's got to be clean. There's a theologian named Millard Erickson who says that God in his holiness is allergic to sin. He's allergic to sin. Think about that image. My brother-in-law is allergic to shrimp. And so when we're with my brother-in-law, we go to a restaurant. He's got to make sure that they do not cook. If they cook shrimp and Usually, that's, he tries to avoid any place that cooks shrimp. But if he finds out that they cook shrimp, he goes to the kitchen and says, do you separate it out? Because if I eat something with shrimp, I'm going to have this very serious reaction. He's allergic to it. I don't have that reaction to shrimp, thank God. I love shrimp. So I don't worry about it. When I'm with him, when I'm not with him, I don't worry about it. It doesn't affect me at all. But when I'm with him, I worry about it, you see. But I enjoy it apart from him. But when we're with him, with my brother-in-law, we, we make sure. No shrimp. But due to sin, the sin within and the acceptance of sin within our society, we become desensitized to sin. We don't think it's a big deal. In fact, apart from God's intervention, apart from his grace in our life, we enjoy it. We enjoy sin a great deal, thank you very much. The sin that enslaves us. The sin that begins to corrupt and corrode us. The sin that breaks down relationships. Until God intervenes. Until we get to know God. Until we get close to God. And we realize, no, this is something in me tells me. It's the Spirit of God, you see. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so God in His mercy gives us His Holy Spirit and His Word to direct us so that we can live a life pleasing to God. Woe is me, I'm unclean. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Is there somebody here who has experienced something of that, of an encounter with the holiness of God and a response to that saying, Lord, I'm unclean. If you've experienced that, thank God for His goodness in showing you who He really is and who you are in relationship to Him and your need to be cleansed. It's a grace. It's a mercy. If you haven't experienced anything like this, if you've not experienced anything like Isaiah's woe is me in the presence of a holy God, then ask God, to reveal Himself to you and to reveal your true self and confess. God is holy. In light of His holiness, we become aware that we're unclean and we confess that. 
But that, thank God, is not the end of the story. That's not the end of the matter. You see, if it was, if it was simply that we recognize that God is holy and that we are unclean, and if that was the end of the story, then where would we be left? Where would Isaiah have been left? Will God clean, clean me? Will God restore me? Will God forgive me? The next step here is that God demonstrates that He is merciful. Yes, He's holy, but He's loving and He's merciful. And He provides a way for His people to be in His presence, to be clean, to be right with Him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The coal from the altar. The altar was a place of sacrifice. The sacrifices were burnt on the altar. The altar was the place where people would bring their offerings and shed the blood there. The priest would burn the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the altar. And it's not that the sacrifice itself would take away the sin. Nothing magic about the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifice was a constant reminder of the price of sin and the price of divine forgiveness. But it was God who provided this way of sacrifice. God who forgave the sin because of His mercy and love. Before Isaiah could speak for God, he needed to be cleansed by God. And God, in His mercy, provided a way for him to be clean. And God still does that. God provides a way for guilty sinners to be clean. For their sins to be atoned for. For their guilt to be taken away. This points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system points us to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus made at the cross. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here today who feels unclean? As you think about the holiness and righteousness of God. <coughs> Maybe to the extent that you think God can't use a person like me because of what I've done. Or because of the things that I think, I'm unclean. Oh, God has to use somebody much cleaner than I am. This vision of Isaiah tells us that God is merciful and desires to clean people. To forgive them. He, God is in the restoring business. Restoration is what He does. He takes people who recognize their brokenness. Their sin, their need for Him. You see, we got it all wrong sometimes when we think about religion. We think that it is a matter of getting ourselves right and then God will use us. Isaiah's vision gets the right order. First, a recognition of who God is. Then a recognition of who we are and be coming to grips with the reality that we need to be cleansed. And then the merciful God comes. And He provides the way. He's done that at the cross. Look to Jesus. If you feel unclean today and God can't use me, look to the sacrifice that Christ has provided for you 
as you come to the table today, look to the sacrifice that Jesus gave you. His blood was shed for you so that you can be cleansed. And then, like Isaiah, after this vision, he got up and he said, Okay, here I am, Lord. Use me. Use me. You've cleansed me. You've convicted me. You've revealed yourself to me. You've cleansed me. Now, use me. And God used him. How can we escape kind of the cultural pressure to conform to this idea that God is small and irrelevant? Christian Smith, remember, had this survey. And he said, that's what Americans think about God. Many Americans. God is a butler. God is a bad therapist. And so I wanted to find out what Christian Smith said about some proposals. Because <laughs> that was kind of depressing. So how can we as individuals and as a church recover a sense of spiritual vitality that God is significant, that God is real. So I looked up, I didn't buy his latest book. I looked him up on YouTube. What's he saying now? And I saw a video where he said, if you want to be different, he was speaking mainly to young people here, but he said, you want to be different. You see, the world wants you to conform. The world is teaching our young people to be passive consumers. Passive consumers on your phone and on the media and buy stuff and believe what everybody else believes. But he said, if you want to be a difference maker rather than just going with the stream, you've got to be a different person. You want to make a difference? Be a different kind of person. And at the heart of being a different kind of person in our culture is somebody who understands something different about God. They understand who God really is. And they interact with God as He really is. And that's what we see with Isaiah. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit, You will help us and our church to be difference makers as we understand who You are and what You have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to recover a vision of your holiness and of your majesty and also of your great mercy and love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.